Uh, the gospel or, or God's work in his people's life isn't just something that changes our relationship with him, but it's something that it's more like a gas than a liquid, and it fills up every space of your life, and it changes that place. Uh, and it, Paul moves his attention now to how the gospel actually moves into the places of our relationships, our strained relationships, even relationships with enemies, and brings renovation there. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about more relationships with friends. And uh, when we get back from spring break, we'll dig into relationships with enemies. But why don't you stand up? We have a short, seemingly simple passage uh, to take a look at tonight. And we will go from there. This is uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 18. And this is the word of the Lord. Paul says uh, to Christians, he's talking to, Your love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual further, fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, and share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of a low position. Don't be conceited. And he ends up saying, he finishes saying this, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are so powerful, so alive, so in control that you can actually, you are able and willing to change every square inch of our lives. Uh, nothing is left untouched uh, by your work in our lives, by your grace, by your love. So we pray tonight that in perhaps one of the places that has seen more damage from our own selfishness and from sin uh, like our relationships, perhaps the place that's most damaged, would we see the most grace in this very place? And would you make that happen? Because my words alone can't accomplish anything except forgetfulness uh, in one ear and out the other. We pray, Holy Spirit, you would teach these words to our very hearts. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, thanks. You can take a seat. Uh, remember really quickly... There is a verse that I'm going to be referencing back when I use the word renovation or renewal that Paul keeps going back to, and it's Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2. It's a little bit about what we talked about uh, last week when Paul said, be transformed by the renewal of your mind uh, and don't be conformed to the world. And so in a, in, a, in a sense, he's saying, be renovated. How does that happen? By the renewal of our mind. What's the alternative What's happening to our minds if it's not being renewed? Well, it's being conformed uh, towards the world, and we'll talk about that in a second. But I wanted to start um, kind of enjoying with some of y'all that have uh, been over to my house over the past nine months. You have seen it at some stage of renovation because Anna and I bought our house last July, and we got an amazing deal on it because uh, our house um, hasn't been updated or touched, or changed, or freshened up in 50 years. Our house is built in 1966, and it's a time capsule for 1966. It's like history froze in my house, and literally nothing, nothing had been 
renovated or renewed since 1966. And so uh, Anna and I got the house for super cheap. We were like, great, we can save that money and put it back in to making all things new and renovating everything. Um, some of y'all have helped us with these projects. We're about two-thirds of the way done. And so we, we, we come into this house, we see some potential in it, and we get to work. Now, here's the problem. Um, one thing God did make me good at is he made me handy, and uh, I love construction and building stuff. One thing he did not make me good at or give me a lot of is imagination or creativity. And so we found this dilemma. Um, we buy the house in July. We move. We kind of we go out of town for a couple of weeks. We come back, and my first baby is due a few weeks later. So we're in a time crunch, and I thought it was the perfect time to tear up all of our floors and our ceilings and our bathrooms while my wife was nine months pregnant. Um, tonight we're talking about love and relationships. That's one thing you should not do to love your spouse one day. But anyway, I did that. Um, but here, the dilemma that we ran into is I can be as handy as can be. But what I struggled to see is how this house could be renovated and transformed. I knew it had potential, but I struggled to see its potential. So I could walk into a room and it would have like brown walls and like, I kid you not, St. Patty's Day and no one has lime green on. Casey, where's your neon tonight? It looked like one of Casey's neon green shirts was the carpet. It was like shag carpet that was neon green with a yellow border with brown walls and disgusting stuff on the ceiling and everything. And I saw that and I hated that and I wanted to change it, but I had no idea what I would change it into. No imagination of what that could be. Um, and so uh, what we ended up doing is uh, our knees buckled. We were beginning to freak out. The baby was coming. We didn't have all the stuff. We had to uh, begin these renovations. And so we discovered um, what ended up transforming our house and our lives. Pinterest. <laughs> I am unashamed to say I love Pinterest. And not because of just the cute little craps and stuff, but... Uh, I love Pinterest because it was like this set of magic glasses that when, I, when we flipped through, we spent hours just looking at other people's patios or living rooms or bedrooms or bathrooms. And Pinterest was like this set of magic glasses that when I had it on, then I could see what the potential of every square inch of our house is. I knew what I was going to do with the backyard. I knew what a porch like ours in the state that it is. I knew what it could become. Um, and so we got excited, we got motivation, we started working, we started making those pictures on Pinterest happen in our house. And so we were able to kind of uh, push the renovations, well, one step further. Uh, in a sense, it's been said of Michelangelo, uh, Michelangelo and the rest of us all saw a rock or a hunk of marble. Uh, but Michelangelo saw something deeper in that rock. He saw the, st the sculpture David, which is world-renowned. People have been flocking to it ever since he made it. Um, and so what Pinterest did for me, though I saw an ugly, old, outdated house, when I was looking at it kind of through the lens of Pinterest, I saw the David. And it's beautiful. And we're getting there. Uh, we're, we've got a little bit more to do. I'm going to be asking some of you to help with the kitchen this summer. Um, but they're coming along. And here's, here's why I'm telling you this story about our house and about Pinterest. I think you and I, I know I can, I think you can relate to a similar sensation in your relationships. Uh, when you kind of, if you think about your relationships right now, and I'm talking relationships with friends, with people who aren't your enemies, and you scan the horizon and the landscape of kind of how those are going for you right now, 
Do you have a similar sense that Anna and I had when we walked into our house? You're overwhelmed by the oldness and all that has to change. And your knees kind of buckle at the thought of how many things you need to be different for you or for your relationships to be beautiful or alive or good or healthy. Uh, and it's not like everything's bad. Like we bought the house. We liked a lot about it. But there was, we were overwhelmed by how much had to be done. And I think we can relate to that in our relationships. We're overwhelmed at how much has to be done. And perhaps, maybe, you're the person who has the imagination and you can envision what your relationship should be, but, you, but you're not handy in a sense. You can't get to that place that you imagine, and so you beat yourself up, or you grow cynical, or you grow cold, or you push people away. Or maybe you're the super handy one. Relationships are easy for you, um, but you can't imagine relationships where you're not paralyzed by insecurity the way you are now. You can't imagine relationships where there's not always bickering and conflict. Or maybe you can't imagine relationships without attention hogging or people pleasing where you can never tell someone the truth because you're afraid they're going to leave if you do. Or maybe you can't ever imagine a relationship without jealousy or gossip or same-sex attraction or whatever it is for you that you can't imagine life apart from that brokenness or oldness or outdatedness. And so you grow discouraged and your knees buckle too. Uh, and either you begin to start to repair it but don't have a vision for what to make it into or you sit there, the creative interior designer with no tools and no idea how to do it. And so here's the point about what Paul is doing here. Paul is, number one, he's implying you're not a dream house. You and I are fixer-uppers at best. We're shacks at worst. We're fixer-uppers at best. But uh, what he's been describing in Romans 12 is the patient, persistent work that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has been doing every day in his people's life. It's like if Jesus himself is the contractor that's taken up the project of your life and he shows up every morning and you hear his truck pull up over the gravel and he gets out and the door shuts and he gets to work. And so now Paul is in a sense putting gospel glasses on you and he's saying, in a sense, imagine not just what could be, for your relationships. Imagine what will be in your relationships. Um, it's, it's imagine what will be, what can be, what will happen as Jesus continues to work in you and as you continue to yield yourself to his work. Uh, and so we'll see that in just a second, what this looks like. But uh, the more this summer went by and the fall went by and now the spring, the more I looked at Pinterest, the more I got drawn into their vision for what my house could be, and it was beautiful. And uh, for just about every project in my house, I can point you back to a picture I saw that I was mimicking. It's the same with the Bible. The more, you, the more exposure you have to God's story and his vision for relationships that are whole and restored and repaired, the more you are drawn into that, and the more just like Pinterest became my vision for my house and I began to see potential everywhere, you will also see a rekindled vision for what can happen in you and your relationships, with your friends, with your enemies, with God. Uh, and you will find yourself more motivated to participate with what he's doing instead of vandalizing what he's doing. And every night when he's, when he's kind of gone home, in a sense, so to speak, with the metaphor, we come in and we spray paint everywhere. No, he's building you. 
He's putting your relationships back together. And when you see that, you begin to participate with him. Uh, And so here is, uh, I want you to hear this before we look at the passage a little more closely. And there's really only one point tonight. It's how the gospel changes our friendships. You need to hear this before we push on. Lest you hear me giving you some little inspirational quips for how to be a better friend. I'm not interested in that. Neither is Paul. Neither is God. Uh, because God knows if the, if the primary thing that broke when sin came into the world was relationships, uh, you should expect relationships to be the most difficult thing to repair. If it's the most complex thing that broke, it's going to be the most complex thing that gets re- repaired, right? If you break a tiny little piece of clay and it shatters, it's easy to glue back together. If you break a beautiful sculpture and that falls apart, it takes a lot longer to put together. And so, lest you think you can do this on yourself, Jesus is the one who not only gives you a vision for who he is making you if you've been connected to him, he is also the one who has breathed life into you and enabled you to even pursue this kind of change. And so you can't bypass Jesus. You can't just say, yeah, well, my relationships are kind of, they, st- they suck, so I just want to kind of take away some, some insights, some little proverbs or fables here and go repair my relationships. That's not how it works. Because we're powerless to change until Jesus makes you alive. Because this is the epicenter of how sin has damaged us, is in our relationships. I shared with you a rhyme about a year ago, for those of y'all who are around, that, uh, that captures this. There's this old pastor named John Erskine. He said, run, John, run the law or morals or rules. Run, John, run the rules command, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A sweeter song the gospel sings. It bids me fly, but gives me wings. So Jesus makes you alive before he starts talking about relationships that are improving and growing and imagining with you how they get better. Does that make sense? He's not talking to dead people saying, here's how you can become a better friend or a better person, right? All right, just got to make sure you hear that before we push on. So the main thing Paul talks about in this passage uh, is how the gospel changes our relationships with people that should be easy to love, right? Maybe you're thinking, why does Paul talk about how to love your friends? Aren't friends the people who are easiest to love? But I think, given some of your faces right now after that comment, and... uh, given the fact of where Paul takes this conversation, it's actually our friendships, even more than our enemies, where I think we miss the boat on what true love actually is. I think there's more counterfeit love in our friendships than there is in our strained relationships. Here's why. In our hardest relationships, you are even physiologically aware of the darkness of it, of the evil of it. Someone has wronged you. You've become a victim You are so aware. It's like you've been cut on the arm. You're so aware of how you've been hurt, right? And maybe you start um, longing for that person to get punished or for something bad to happen or you give them the cold shoulder and you feel inside of you, this is wrong. Like, I want to do harm to this person. This shouldn't be the way it is, right? So you notice red flags go up in our head. This isn't right. I'm not loving this person. This is not, why am I feeling so angry? Why am I so wrapped into this? But in our our friendships, in our easier relationships, that's actually where I think we kind of pass counterfeit bills all the time. Because we can't tell the real thing from the the counterfeit thing. 
And it's easy relationships that we can be more manipulative in those, or we can use people more, or our people-pleasing can be fed because people think you're awesome, and you never really have to say hard things because you'll let other friends step in and do that. Does it make sense how our friendships are actually probably more pitfalls there than maybe even our enemies? And so it's a good thing Paul starts talking about that. So maybe before we, before we push on, we should talk about what are the counterfeits that pass for love? What are the fake things in our relationships as Christians or as a body, if you're not a Christian with your friends, that we think is real but it's actually counterfeit? Well, here's some of the things Paul draws attention to. Uh, here in the passage, he's making this constant point that true love is a love that tangles itself up in other people. It's an inconvenient love. It's a love where two people or a group of people, the lines blur between them and become indistinguishable. So their pain becomes your pain, their problem becomes your problem, their need becomes your need, their joy becomes your joy. But counterfeit love is where two individuals remain untangled, unblurred, remain two individuals. They're taking from each other. It's one person taking from the other person. Uh, it's a consumer relationship. You're there uh, when you want to be there and you're not uh, when you don't want to be there. It's a, it's a tale of two agendas competing, two sets of desires, two trajectories that are kind of using each other to catapult them further into their own desires and pleasures and interests. And that's why these relationships are so lonely. You ever had a good friendship that you're still lonely inside of? I think that happens all the time. Now, loneliness doesn't go away because we get friends, even close friends. And the reason why we feel lonely is if you're in a relationship with a person who's not tangled up in your life in the way Paul talks about, they can't feel the blisters that you feel every time you move. Uh, and the reason why is they've never walked life in your shoes. And Paul, Paul describes a very different kind of love. He, he describes a kind of love that we'll talk about in a second where when somebody else feels the blister, you know what it feels like because you have, you know what life is like for them. You, you're so tangled into their life, their story, their sorrows and their joys that what happens to them is almost like virtual reality. It's happening to you as well. There's a few other ways that this gets even more creepy and dangerous inside of a Christian community. Paul talks about in verse 9, love must be sincere. The word he uses there kind of means genuine, but it literally means love must be unhypocritical. And the word hypocritical means acting. So Paul is saying love can't be pretend. Not when the stakes are this high. Uh, not when God, in a sense, has, at the cost of his very own life, moved towards a world to put relationships back together. You can't pretend at love. And so in Christian communities, oftentimes, what happens is we don't love a person, we don't like a person, but we know we're supposed to love them, and so we put on a facade of niceness. I'd say niceness is one of the most, um, it's one of the ugliest Christian virtues because it hides a dark closet of resentment, bitterness, gossip, double-heartedness, all kinds of stuff. But we, but we kind of put on our polite face. Um, that's one way that this kind of morphs inside of our communities. Or 
a counterfeit version of relationship or love could be RUF becoming a place for you where it's just about you getting more friends. It's, kinda, it's a new little pool of friendships that you can take from. And once you kind of get inside or get into the group that you want to be a part of, you start protecting that turf. And anybody that gets close to that turf or close to your friends becomes a threat and they have to be pushed away or they have to be hated in your mind to kind of undo the damage you're afraid of them doing. We become clicky. We stop associating with people of low position that Paul says in verse 16. We only see friendship as possible with people who are exactly like us because our friendships are based on our pleasures and, uh, and me getting love from other people. And so I can't get love from people who aren't like me and so I don't associate with them anymore. Jealousy begins to breed. Selfishness begins to breed. Or... It could be this. And I'm, with all of this, I'm speaking to myself too. Um, it's not just that we create cliques. We also bump from community to community to ministry to ministry, church to church. And our diagnosis is always the same. That group is clicky. And I think what I, what I often hear behind the comment, that group is clicky, is I expected to be worshipped and I wasn't. I expected to be welcomed and adored and marveled at, but they didn't do it. And so they're kind of exclusive and closed off to me. Do you see how that's kind of a failed form of the same thing that people who create cliques are doing? It's using other people for my own benefit. And these people are upset because other people aren't giving me what I want. And so here's the point. It's not to beat us up. It's to say, Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. The point of talking about this and the counterfeits and the stuff that Paul pushes against is to, in a sense, walk you into the house with me and Anna to take a look at the brown carpet and the grungy ceilings and the disgusting other stuff that was there that I'll spare you knowing about. To say, we need renovation. We need renewal. Um, I need transformation uh, in my relationships. That's what Paul's kind of intending to do with this kind of stuff. And so, here's how, the, here's, here's how Jesus and his grace begins to put us back together again in our lack of creativity, in our settling, which you could say is a good synonym for the word conformity to the world. It's just settling, it's coasting, it's letting the current take you, where you wherever it goes. Uh, it's, it's marked primarily by a life of ease because you're just floating. It's like a river trip. Uh, in our settling for the way our, world, our relationships are, uh, Jesus kind of pushes into that and he says, this isn't the way it was meant to be. And if I've made you alive and if you are resurrected and living now, if heaven's breaking into brokenness now, then you had better expect change to start happening at his doing. And so what does gospel-shaped love do? If we've already kind of talked about what worldly love, selfish love, counterfeit love in relationships is like, what does gospel-shaped love, renovated love look like? from the passage. Paul throws out a ton of stuff. Did you get overwhelmed like I did? I was kind of like, if you're taking notes, Paul, slow down a bit. Um, this is like too many things for me to do and all of them sound impossible. Like the first words out of your mouth was, let love be genuine. And I'm like, whoa, stop there. Let's talk about how I do that. But he keeps on going. He says, it's supposed to be sincere. It's not deceitful or fake. It's devoted and brotherly. It's familial. It's not forced or cold or just out of duty, or out of guilt. 
It's honorable. It thinks of others before and better than yourself. It's hospitable, he says, towards the end of the passage. It welcomes others into your life. And it treads gently in others' lives, lest we scare them with what we're going to do if they let us inside. It's generous to the point of hurting. And then he says something uh, towards the end. He says it's empathetic, which means when the other person feels a blister in their foot, you know where it is and what it feels like because you've walked a mile in their shoes. Gospel love also acts its way into feeling instead of feeling its way into acting. Here's the difference. Worldly love, empty love, powerless love, whatever you want to call it, uh, its only motivator is feeling. So I will love a person when I feel like loving a person. I will do this when I feel like doing that. And conversely, I won't do it when I don't feel like it. If you're dating someone, this is like where you spend most of your conversations with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. Um, It's can you still love the other and put their interests ahead of yours when there's no emotions at all there? Um, Can you still pursue someone else's interests when you don't feel like it or when you're not in a good mood? Or are we captive and enslaved to our moods? Whatever way we woke up, it's like that's our death sentence. We just have, we lose that day. Or are we still capable of loving a person when there's not these overwhelming emotions like motivating you into that? Um, I would say, uh, do, do you only move when there's wind in your sails? Or do you know how to row as well? No wind at all. Requires more effort, less sexy, less fun than when the wind is blowing and your ship's moving. Can you still move towards people when there's no wind? Gospel love can because it's motivated by something so much bigger than what's native to you. Gospel love is motivated by Jesus himself and his resurrection power. It's this renovative force. It's this personal power that is pushing you towards other people. To the extent that we yield to it, um, to the extent that we're awake to it, we begin to move, even when, the, even when the feelings aren't there. So what do we do if we don't feel love for a person, but Paul just said here, let your love be real, be genuine, be sincere. How do we do that if the emotions aren't there sometimes? Well, we said gospel love acts its way into feeling. It doesn't feel its way into acting. So the decision to love comes first. Um, with the anticipation and the expectation that the feelings of love will come later. It's awesome when you feel motivated to say a nice thing to a person, to encourage them, to reconcile with them. Um, But if that's the only time you can do that stuff, you're not free. And Jesus would have his people to be free because he has freed you all the way. And so what do we do in those situations? We repent our way to sincerity. Um, We begin to say loving things, do loving things, tangibly put their interests ahead of our own while praying to Jesus for mercy to be softened towards them. Uh, We begin to dialogue with God. God, if you had waited for feelings of love to move towards me and to rescue me, I would be dead completely in my sin. God doesn't love you because he's an adolescent teenager who's overcome with emotions. God decided to love you. And then he moved towards you. And then he gave all for you. And I would say after that or during that, he begins to delight over his people. 
But he's not, this isn't a flippant little God woke up in a good mood and decided to rescue you one day. He decided first and we're to do the same. We repent our way into a better relationship. This is something we don't often think about. Paul says right after love must be genuine, he says, hate what is evil and cling to what is good. So here's something to try on for size. Sincere love hates just as much as it loves. So sincere love, it's, it's one coin. Love and hate, same coin. If it's true love, there will be a true hatred of all that threatens that person uh, on the other side of that coin. John Stott says this, he says, Real love is so passionately devoted to the beloved so that it hates every evil which is incompatible with that person's highest welfare. Um, And so, in a sense, if you see one of your friends or roommates or boyfriend or girlfriend or sibling moving away from Jesus, coasting away from the gospel, being conformed to the pattern of the world, their heart is hardening, and you see it, the question is, do you hate that sin that is killing them? Do you hate that sin that is pulling them away from God and pulling them away from community? Or do we just kind of have a nonchalant, indifferent attitude towards it? Um, Do we speak into that even at the risk of that person temporarily or longer term pushing us away? Or in preference of our own comfort, do we keep quiet? Becky Pippert adds this. This is really helpful. She says, the more a father loves his son, the more he hates in his son, the drunkard, the liar, and the traitor. She says, the fact is, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. So the most mature form of hate is not caring about a person who's sliding away, in a sense, to apply it to that situation. Does your love hate that which threatens those you love? Does your love fight for their welfare? One of the last things we'll talk about is that gospel love makes two lives or two people or many people blur into one. It's this harmony thing Paul keeps talking about. I would say that's the theme of all of these verses. If you had to find the lowest common denominator, what do they all have in common? Paul is saying that the relationship between us, uh, the relationship between Christians is one that should, above anything else, be marked by unity. Be marked by, in a sense, us, our lives becoming tangled up in one another's lives the way God's life has become tangled up in his people's life. God is not a God who stands far away. If you don't know this God, you probably grew up like me thinking that God is an idea or he's some vaporous being somewhere that's issued all these rules and we're supposed to follow it. He's impersonal. He's AWOL. Uh, But the God of the Bible is anything but that. He is a God who, when the world broke, he flinched and moved straight towards the smoke and the damage. And he's a God who begins to tangle his life with all of his resources, all of his power, all of his grace. He begins to wrap it up inside of all of our brokenness and all of our guilt and all of our shame. And that's how he goes about renovating the world and the people in it. And what results from that is harmony happens Paul says some pretty crazy stuff here. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you in a relationship or if you've been the one blessing another with this kind of stuff. Uh, But he says uh, this. He says, other people's burdens 
uh, and this kind of unity and harmony and tangledness and blurriness so become your burdens that when they weep, you weep. When they rejoice, you rejoice in, in verse 15. And he says, live in this harmony with one another. And so in a sense, it's how do you know this is happening in your life? Do you lie awake at night ever bothered by other people's problems or just your own? Do you ever float off to sleep praying for your friends instead of just yourself? That's a good thing to pray for yourself. Does anybody else get any airtime in there? Um, does anybody else's week, do you, do you think about anybody else's week or their schedule or what they're going through during your busy schedule or your busy week? Do these things begin to tangle themselves up in your schedule, in your sleep? in your prayers, in your hopes, in your free time. These are marks that the gospel is beginning to blossom even more and more in our lives. Perhaps we should end here with an illustration and an application. Have you heard of a guy named Father Damien? I wanted to read you a uh, a very short account of this Catholic priest who moved to the island of Molokai in Hawaii about 100 years ago. Uh, Father Damien is famous for what I'm about to read to you. For 16 years, Father Damien lived in the midst of the lepers who lived on Molokai Island. That was a leper colony. Only lepers were allowed on it. And he chooses that island to go and to be a priest. He learned to speak their language. He bandaged their wounds. He embraced the bodies no one else would touch. He preached to hearts that would otherwise have been left alone. He organized schools, bands, and choirs. He built homes so that the lepers could have shelter. And he built 2,000 coffins by hand so that when the lepers died, they died with dignity. Slowly, it was said, uh, that island became a desirable place to live rather than a death sentence to live. He made it so good, other people wanted to start moving there. Father Damien wasn't so careful about keeping his distance He did nothing to separate himself from his people. He dipped his fingers in the same water that they cleaned in. He shared his pipe with them. He didn't always wash his hands after bandaging their open sores. He got close. And for this, the people loved him. Then one day, he stood up to begin his weekly sermon with two words. We lepers. Now he wasn't just helping lepers. He was a leper. And from this day forward, he wasn't just on their island. He was in their skin. In a sense, he felt their blisters when they were walking because now he had those blisters. First, he had chosen to live as they lived. Now he would die as they died. Now they were in it together. What is the motivator? I said earlier, the gospel is the only thing that can motivate you into repenting of our worldly ways and our relationships. It's the only power that could ever move you outside of yourself genuinely towards another person where their life begins to become your life. Their burdens, your burdens. Their needs, your prayers. The only way this happens is as our minds are renewed. That's what we talked about last week. Exposure to the God who in a sense came to earth and said, we lepers. We humans, this is not a distant God. This is the God who at this very moment in the person of Jesus has scars on his hands, blisters to show from walking life in your shoes. 
This is the God who rejoices with your joy. This is the God who weeps with you in your sorrow. This is the God who groans with you in your struggle. This is the God who is ever alert to your needs. This is the God better than Father Damien who specifically chose to make a life for himself in the corrupted, polluted, infected place called earth to put us back together, to put our relationships back together. And if he is making you alive and has made you alive in Jesus, this is a vision not just to inspire you. This is your future. Just like when I saw those Pinterest pictures and I knew that I had the power to do it, I got busy doing it and I loved doing it and I love the way it looks. You have the vision for what you're becoming as a lover of people and a lover of God. You have the equipment to do it in Jesus. Are you motivated? Will we move towards each other in repentance?